And we're live. What's up, guys? John Sintes here, Cast Kreitlow, Cutter Nation Baseball Podcast number 93. Welcome. Appreciate everybody taking some time out of the day to come listen to yet another amazing baseball of mine. Um, but first, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Really helps us uh, get it out there. Also, push to social media if you can. We've grown tremendously since COVID, and we've also just been really, really having some great conversations. So go back and check out some older ones. Um, but without further ado, I, I would love for a, a just a full round of applause for Seth Lentz, aka the Pitching Doctor on Instagram. Uh, one of my favorite pages uh, as of late. So I, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day and coming over here, Seth. I appreciate you having you guys having me. So, um, you know, we we talked a little bit off air ahead of time. Um, the name uh, pitching doctor on Instagram. Uh, it, have you had any pushback on the the whole doctor thing, or is or is the internet <laughs> left you alone? Oh no, not at all. Uh, not for a moment. It's actually funny now. All the guys out here, they they call me Doc. That's what they call me. Actually, it's uh, because and that's that's actually appropriate too because. Uh, you know, that I work closely with Seth Blair as well and two Seths, you know, it's confusing. So um, it ended up finding its place after all. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. So um, why don't uh, everybody give you uh, the history of yourself? Uh, just introduce yourself to our audience. Okay. Um, so I was a 2008 draft out of high school. Um, I was a second round pick. And then I played with the Brewers for four and a half, was released before Rule 5, uh, didn't play the rest of the season, didn't know if I wanted to play, um, came back and played independent ball and went Joliet, made, made it through spring training, got released after my first outing for throwing behind a guy. Uh, went back, got went back to Arizona and played in the Freedom League, which I'm not even sure exists anymore. It was more of no, a men's league, yeah, no, more of a men's not. league back then, and it was close to home, somewhere I could pitch. I ended up meeting a guy by the name of Ryan Henderson, really great guy. I believe he is a, a scout now. Um, and Ryan ended up going on to coach American Association in El Paso, which also doesn't exist anymore. And um, ended up taking me with him. So he was my coach on the Freedom League team and then um, got a job there midway through the season. Well, I went and after the Mexican League ended, they brought in maybe seven or eight guys and a bunch of us lost our jobs. So I walked across the field uh, to the team we were playing, which was Laredo at the time. And um, Pete Incavilio was the manager. And I asked Pete if there was any chance that he thought he might have a, a place for me. Well, Pete said, hey, you know, possibly. You know, he looked at my stuff and uh, he said, come back tomorrow, you know, before the game and talk to me. And by then, he'd already released the dude on the road. So he gave me a shot. I went back with him. I uh, Thankfully, at that time, there was a pitch, our pitching coach there, uh, Lance, Lance Brown. He was uh, – an old timer who'd been in the game for a long time, even, you know, was uh, Nolan Ryan's bench coach, I believe, with the Astros and had been around a lot of really great guys in the game and taught me a ton when I was there. I had 
some difficulty early on with command. And as you guys know from playing, I'm sure um, anytime you got anxiety about getting cut or getting released or whatever, that doesn't help. You know, that oh. added stress on top of it, right? So um, I got brought in. Pete brought me in. He said, hey, you know, I'm not going to release you. Because like, I had my, my first outing there was bad. You know, I was throwing hard, but it wasn't that wasn't a good outing. And uh, I was really afraid because, you know, an independent ball, it's like you either produce or you're gone. So, um, you know, he said, I'm not going to release you. We got, you know, three more weeks of the season. Like, just settle in, work with Lance. You'll continue to get opportunities. It may be I'm losing games at first, but by the end of the year, you know, I was – I was putting it all together. He called a scout for me and the Diamondbacks signed me. And then <clears throat> going into spring the next year, I thought that I, I'd had some great numbers. In fact, I, I, the day before I got cut in spring with the Diamondbacks, I uh, struck out the side twice against Oakland's double-A. And I pitched two innings and was – 95, 96, I thought there's absolutely no way I go in the first cut. Yet, Randy Wolf got traded over at that same time, and I lost my job again. So back to Laredo, it was, and, uh, you know, I ended up uh, actually quitting midway through the season then because I was throwing 100 and no one was signing me. So I said, hey, I'm just going to call up guys and, you know, end up – requesting that I have a have my agent call him up at the complex and go throw for him, you know, so I can guarantee that I get seen. I had some other things that happened once I got back um, in midseason. Personal life, I was engaged at the time. The year after that, uh, spring, I just trained for the rest of the offseason. I went and threw for Seattle. I said, yeah, we're ready to sign you. I went in for my physical. I had swelling in my knee. They said, you got to get imaging done. Got imaging done. They said, you got PVNS, which is a rare genetic condition that uh, when you have repeat inflammation in the joint, it can bring on an overproduction of synovial tissue. So that synovial tissue produces your synovial fluid in the joint and too much fluid, and that's what gives you the edema and can cause further complications. So. I ended up saying, all right, well, you're not going to sign me, you know, and I'm throwing the best I've ever thrown in my life. I'm just going to go over to Texas and see if they'll sign. You know? So I did that. And I was, uh, oddly enough, me and one of my friends at the time with the Brewers, Mark Rogers, a former first rounder with them. We were the two of like maybe 65 guys in that free agent workout they have each year before spring that they wanted to offer. Well, of course, same story. I mean, I knew it was going to happen. They scheduled the physical. So I drain, I tried to drain my knee myself in the bathtub. I called my mom. My mom's a nurse. I, <laughs> yeah, I had her walk me through a, an intraarticular injection behind the kneecap and pulled out about 60 milliliters of fluid. So I did that, and then it was drained. I mean, it was it looked normal. You know, I figured, hey, I'll get through the year. I did because it wasn't painful. Or make it through the year and then they'll have to give me surgery and we'll be, you know, we'll be cooking then, you know, I'll just be on the club and whatever. And, uh, but of course I, I should have done it the day up, 
a little piece of advice for guys out there who are looking to drain their knee before a physical. Uh, do it the day of, because the day the day after that thing is swollen. Okay, it's not a good idea. So I didn't get away with anything, and of course I had to get the surgery, and you know I ended up uh, rushing my rehab to try to get back by the draft because I knew, hey, a guy who's coming off an injury. There's no way that I'm going to sign as a free agent unless I can get back around a time where they got slots, right? Got some mm -hmm. slots open for guys and roster slots open for guys. I said, I missed that window. I'm not going to pitch all season, you know? So I tried to condense four months of rehab into three. And I didn't go to physical therapy at all because I went there the first two days and I told him this isn't going to get me there. Like, this is not enough. You're not pushing me hard enough. He said, well, you got to trust the process. Blah, blah, blah. I said, look, you got to, I'm trying to get this done like half the time. So you really got to push me. And they didn't. So I just did it on my own after that. And I have a cousin who's a physical therapist. So, and my mom has some knowledge in that arena. And I've done a lot of self-study in that area too. So I knew what to do, but you know, it was just whether somebody was going to, be willing to do it at my speed, I suppose. Well, that was stupid. And I mean, I rushed that, but I did end up signing the way that I wanted to. Texas signed me before the draft. I went on and I I couldn't handle the workload, though, because, hey, man, you got a guy who they free agent signed for the second time to a minor league deal at the age of 27 or whatever. They're going to pile some innings on you, you know, and then see what to do with you in the fall. You either make the 40 man in the spring the next year or you're not there, you know. Well, I had an outing in the fall against the Brewers and uh, of, ever, of all teams, right? The old homestead. And it was probably the worst outing of my life. And I just, man, it was just awful. I couldn't even get out of the inning. And uh, I told Mike Daly, the director uh, player development at Texas that when I got back to the, the clubhouse, I was like, man, you know, Mike, I know that I'm not doing the job that you signed me to do. You know, I'm not the same guy as what you signed the last two times you saw me pitch really, you know, before I actually signed with the club. And he said, yeah, you know, you're not, you're not doing your job. And I, and he didn't release me, but I knew what that meant. You know, it was like, you're going to get through the end of this fall period and then you're going to be gone, you know? So I, I just packed up my stuff and went and cried in the car for a little bit. And, you know, went home and I, I actually was supposed to be married two months later and that fell apart too. So I lost baseball and that and, you know, a lot of stuff kind of all at the same time and, and went, you know, the ups and downs of baseball, man, it, it really rocked my life for a little while. And it took me a little while to find, get my feet back up underneath me and figure out what relationship I wanted to have with the game after that. So. Here we are. You can definitely say no. Can you tell me the the exact how bad that outing was? Can you be specific? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think I think I and, and I want to up... say one thing. I what I have kids in mind who've had really bad outings and it just destroyed them. And so, like, I think I think that's where I'm coming from. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, let me put it this way that. The bad outing, it didn't destroy me. I had plenty of bad outings in my life. But I know but what I, I, I but what I knew is what I knew is that 
there was, it was a turning point. I mean, I knew that the coaches that when they were watching this, they knew this dude's not ready. You know, like he's clear he's not ready. A, a guy who is ready wouldn't look like that. You know, I knew that much. I knew that was pretty evident. Uh, it was, you know, I didn't get out of the inning. I think maybe I had two outs. But it was one of those deals where everything that could go wrong could go wrong. So it wasn't a ton of walks. There were some walks in there, too, of course. But maybe walk two or three guys yet. When, you know, when things start going wrong and pitching, as you start to get older, you realize this. But Or maybe when it's too late, you realize this. But you, you just – you simply need to back off and, and change speeds and, and try smarter, you know, instead of trying to ram it down their throat and, and throw it by them continuously and do the same things repeatedly. You know, I mean, that's just a young man's mentality, you know, to, to force it if it doesn't fit. And um, I did that. I panicked and did that because I had a lot of emotion that was associated with uh, that field and everything as well, you know, that team and, trying to make it back and trying to define myself as a player at that point. And uh, it was hard to see that until I was, you know, it was hindsight. But, yeah, I mean, uh, if I was simply would have just thrown a curveball every single pitch after things started going wrong, I'd have been out of there in no time. But, I, you know, I didn't do that. So one of those deals where I just kept, you know, going after guys and thinking that I was going to get a ground ball. And maybe that happened, but it was through the hole. Yeah, I didn't change my approach at all. Didn't make an adjustment. You know? So it was just live or die by cheese, right? That's what that's what the plan was. Like you, you were. Well, gonna... yeah, at that moment, yeah, I was gonna live by the sword and die by it. I guess. That's that's actually one of my favorite phrases. Is actually live or die by your best pitch, mm-hmm. and you know, um, knowing when it when it is appropriate. Also, though, I've I've been through some gnarly outings myself. Um, it, it's very, very interesting. You and I have um, some very weird parallels uh, with small circle. Um, that El Paso year, what year was that? Uh, There's actually an article written even when I was there uh, because they did run Brandon Kinsler too, uh, coming out of the independent ball. I think it was maybe 2013, 14. So I'm pretty sure I was in the Pecos League at that time, and some of the guys from the Pecos <laughs> ended up going over to El Paso. Um, Absolutely, they did. Bro. Justin Cooks. Yes, yes, Cooks. Yes, so I played with Cooks. And, and uh, uh, blonde hair guy, kid, I can't remember, but yeah. Kyle Creech, lefty. Yes, there was a guy. And then Joe Torrey, did he come over there too? I don't remember that. But... Joe Torrey was the coach. He was like a player coach, like a weird – anyway, he runs the Black Sox right now, which is like a um, – it's like a travel team for indie ball guys that go play all of the okay. indie ball teams across the country. I know exactly what you're talking about. So it's a great, great kind of like a. Uh, they used to have one in the Frontier League that was just strictly yeah. road team. Yeah, they had a road team. The Grace or something. Yeah, yeah, it, it won whatever. Um, but that being said, it, it's, it's interesting. Your story is, is very similar. Um, I've been through some hardships on both sides of it, whether it was injuries or, you know, I got. The hard um, conversation I, when I was in Mexico too. I made it to the Pacific League, and I was talking to some some big time scouts, and they just broke down like, "Look, you're because th- I'm 34." They said, mm-hmm. "You're 30. You got 75 pitchers ahead of you. You have three years to get ahead of 75 pitchers. Do you think you can do that? 100. percent Not just mm-hmm. 99. 
if the only way you're going to get there is 100%. And mm-hmm. we think that you have the stuff to get there. But if I turn you in, a non-affiliated American, Mexican only and indie only guy, I'm going to lose my job because it, you, you don't make sense on paper. And I said, dude, I sure. get it. So I just stayed down there and, and just kept playing and and the game that the the change the transition of the game was was interesting to me and I and I would like to get your perspective on this um, the difference mentality of the game itself of winning to getting your work in from affiliated to indie ball to me it just seems like a whole different world um, for what I what I experienced and for the people now I never played affiliated ball but I did know that. You know, I, I did know the system. I do know there was a lot of limitations. Like you're going to throw four innings. You're going to throw. You know, you knew when you were kind of throwing mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it, w- what was the differences that you noticed there? You know, go, coming in and, and especially going in and out multiple leagues. You know. Yeah. Um, so my, I guess my take on independent bowl. Really? Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah what yeah. you're going to experience with that? So. Yeah. I would say, uh, very little room for development. You know, when it comes to that, you're you're not guys don't have anything invested in you. Okay, there is no investment in you in independent ball, so you don't have a signing bonus that they're keeping you around because they've pumped you know 500 grand into you, and they need to make sure that that investment pays off. You know, they're not gonna give you second chances and stuff like that. That doesn't really exist. Um, and more kind of like what have you done for me lately mentality. Now there are different leagues. Obviously, you got the Frontier League, which I believe the max age is twenty-eight, something like that. 20 29. I okay. think it's twenty-seven, twenty-eight. You're close, right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and then you're looking at. I mean, I think it's like a Texas league or something now, or something. Uh, uh, I think the maybe three, it was like what was United or something. Yeah, I think that one folded. I think we're down to three three main leagues. I think we got Frontier, American, American and Atlantic. Yeah, Atlantic. Yeah. Oh, I can and the Can Am just combined with Can-Am. Frontier, so they uh, uh, that yeah. just happened this year. So, yeah, yeah. So I think you're kind of looking at pretty much the minor leagues right there. You're probably looking at Frontier, American Association, Atlantic League. That's your single A, double A, triple A kind of progression with the level of play. Because you know, Atlantic League has got a lot of former big league guys even. Yeah, it's it's but, huge. We had a guy come from there before, and then we have a um, former big leaguer, Vance Worley, heading to um, Somerset um, this year sure. too. So we're excited for him. So I think I think that what you really have to identify whenever you're questioning is independent ball for me or whatever is what is your ultimate agenda? Okay, now if you your intentions are to sign with a team. And, and this is funny, okay, because I think people really want to know this. This is really good information to know. I, Seth is a perfect example of this. It's what I told him. I told him this based upon my own experience of independent ball. Because over that period of time, Seth really wasn't playing independent ball because of two things. He had an injury, an anthoracic outlet, and then he was dealing with some custody stuff with his son. So over that period of time that Seth spent as a free agent before he finally signed with the Padres again, um, you know, that I was undergoing my experience with independent ball. So he got to kind of learn, I suppose, from that in a way. And this is what I would tell you guys. Whatever your agenda is, you need to identify it early on and say, am I playing independent ball because I I envision myself playing in the big leagues? 
you know, you got guys like David Peralta who pulled that off. Uh, Brandon Kinsler pulled that off. I think it's very possible to pull it off. I don't think that I was far from doing it whenever I was with the Diamondbacks. I think that I, I, I don't really think that it, I think that just a few things happen here and there every now and then. And it's not in the cards because it is business and you got to make tough decisions and it may not be your time, you know, but, but if you don't hang around in the game and have longevity and it, and persistence in that light to show your repeatability and to show that you are uh, a guy who's going to be reliable in that sense, then you're not going to ever be in the big leagues anyway. So that's part of the reason why this backyard baseball thing is, is so cool is because a lot of the guys that are here are, are the grinders of this game, man. They're, most of them are 30 years old and have been sticking it out through a lot of ups and downs, man. You know, they're, they're still with a lot of the game. Well, I think guys at some point, you know, there are some guys where they, they finish playing baseball and they get released and they know like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not headed to the big leagues yet. I'm not ready to give this dream up yet, or I'm not ready to stop playing baseball or I just simply love the game. And I know I'm not going to be young forever. And they go play because of that. And they may make a few bucks, but, but not much. Guys. I mean, independent ball, don't, you don't make much money unless you go to Mexico or Venezuela or wherever else. I mean, it, money's not here for that. So I think this is what I told Seth. I said, based on my experience, you know, I was, I was throwing some of the best I ever had in my life, but it didn't matter because there was no one there to see it. So here's what I think. I think if you really want to play in the big leagues, what you do is you just train and you train the right way and you develop your tools. And then whenever you're ready to rock, I, I think that you're going to hear if you go throw for a team and they tell you, Hey, go throw an independent ball for a little while and prove yourself. Then basically that's code for your stuff's not good enough for me to sign you on the spot. Right. Yeah. I mean, all I know is this, if you, the dude showed up throwing 100 off the bump right there in front of him with secondary pitch, is he going to say that? No. He's going to say, where are you going after this? Are you going to another team? Just like they said to me. If we don't sign you today, my daily quite literally asked me this. If we don't sign you today, are you going to go right back over to Seattle? I said, you better believe it. And that's when things get done. Okay. Mm -hmm. So – I don't think that there's any point if you're real, if your vision is to really play major league baseball to ever go play independent ball ever, because why would you, I can train and I can get a lot more done and I can get my sharpen my tools and I can prep to prove that I am at a big league level a lot more effectively on my own than I can worrying about being on the road or crappy food or getting paid a thousand bucks a month, you know, whatever else or being apart from my loved ones in the process and everything else that goes along with that, you know, that experience. So I told Seth that, and that's what we always believe. If your stuff's good enough to be undeniable, then when they, sh when you show up and you do it, you'll see it. And that's what happened that one year with Padres. And that's what's going to happen today because he's going to throw right here in front of the pirates and the Rangers. We get, track man data that says, hey, dude's throwing 100 and barefoot shoes on a turf mound in his backyard. I guess, you know, 
who really cares about independent ball anymore or him proving anything. Love it. Love it. We, the, the, the parallel that I find very interesting right now and the messages that what we put, put out, we're not, we don't go into that pro side, but I, it's the exact same concept, which is we have so many of these kids on the younger side that are worried about going D1 and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And, and it's like, hey, man, you have to get to the level before you can even think about it. What do you, you're jumping, you're jumping so far ahead talking about how, oh, I'm going to play at Arizona or San Diego State, wherever it is, right? But you have, you know, haven't even, you're not even there. And that, right. you know, um, you know, over the years that I've been doing this, the, the very cool thing that I find um, uh, that's been happening as of late, just because of radar guns have been more accessible, is that the ability for these kids to understand it earlier and earlier, we're starting to see them being like, oh, what, what are we doing? Why, why am I? Why am I going and playing 14 weekends? What's what's happening there? What, what's what's this? You know, if I if I were to just stay and train and get myself to where I needed to be, then I'll probably give myself a way better chance. You know, and that's the philosophy that that's, we're putting out. You know, and we. Man, you know what? I gotta I gotta tell you, I don't mean to interrupt you at all there, but what you just said. I mean, I worked with. See, prior to coming here, my everything that I teach, I've taught these guys since I've been here was what I learned uh, teaching kids, you know, when I told you when I was in school back in D.C. So you teach little nine, ten-year-old kids how to throw, you know, from a professional perspective or whatever, and you figure out what cues work best. Well, all those same ones work well for big league guys, too, even better. So um, what, what what you said is important to note that, that kids – they spend all this money, man, on these tournaments and on all this travel stuff and on where they think they're headed. And guys saving money and spend it on the right kind of training. Train the right way. Because it's exactly what Seth says about his own boy Beckham all the time. He said, I don't need you to be ready to go play a pro ball right now. Like, all we need to do is set the date as to when you're going to be ready. And then none of this other stuff before then matters except for how it aids in your training and your athleticism and your foundation. Because it's a long, it's get a look at the long term, you know, like who cares who had, whether Billy or Johnny was MVP when they were 14. No one even remembers that. What we remember is what kids had a good foundation, what kids understood how to, do a lunge properly when early on Well, kids understood how to, you know, get into good positions and understood what their body looked like, saw themselves on video at a young age or, you know, like all the little things I learned good footwork at a good age, danced, uh, played soccer. You know, I mean, there are lots of martial arts. There's lots of different things for good footwork. Um, you know, but there's lots of different activities that I think should be focused on well above paying $3,000 for your kid to go play on this high-level summer team when he's 13 or 14 when no one's looking at him anyway. I'll be honest with you. I, I, well, it's, great to, it's great to I, see the, the that. But... We actually need the rec-style baseball and like that because that's free. And, and, and everybody just needs to play in their community because – 
because the things that they need to be practicing that we're not talking about is they, they actually need to have fun with their friends and build relationships through the game. Right. Amen. So you, right. So, so that's what the game is for. And, and then adults can actually teach kids the strategy, right? Like how do you guys in this game and a lot of. Oh, you jumped out real quick. Okay. Um, it, Cass, can I hear you? Say something. Yeah, can, I can hear you. Oh, are you hear me? I was sure if it just we lost you for a second. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, yes, we're good. Um, oh, oh, sweet. Um, anyway, what he was saying, and right in line, what we talk about all the time. I we personally think the game and where people miss it is is like. They look at it too broadly and they're trying to do this whole development thing of playing games. And meanwhile, like really the game comes down to wiffle ball. That's all it is, right? It's the hitter versus the pitcher. And that's the only important part of the game. And, and anything beyond that is a reaction to what happened there. Right. And you just can't like anybody that wants to argue that point just doesn't understand literally how the game is played. Right. The most, the most money thrown out on either side normally goes to the best pitcher and the best hitter, right? It's not, it's not, he's an outfielder. He's, oh, he's, he's the MVP because his, he robbed a thousand more balls than right. anybody else, right? Not saying that that's not valuable, but that's not what because it doesn't have paid. as big of an impact. That's exactly. right. We know right? the game starts there, guys. We know that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and if you look at, I, want, I don't remember exactly what the percentage is, but let, let's just be, let's be conservative, right? Let's say that 70% of the television screen is pointed at home plate, right? And if you look at the KBO and the, and the Japan League, right? Like my favorite part about what they're doing right now and the fact that ESPN has no control over it is they're constantly doing replays of the pitcher and the hitter. As soon as the ball's thrown, their 14 to 18 seconds is filled with slow motion behind sure. release point of the ball. And yeah. then slow It'll motion. Be more and more like that too, right? Exactly, exactly. right? And so um, what we're trying to do over here is build an all-data-filled live at bat situation where people understand where the numbers come from earlier like they do in golf. You watch a golf match right now. It is boring to a point, but they figured out how to not make it. Because of when the ball hits, there's a streamer, and then there's a spin rate, and then there's wind speed, and then, you know what I'm saying, distance. It gives you all of these numbers, so you're attractive. I don't know what this number means, but, oh, well, even if you've never watched golf, you understand that 295 and 305 are different. It doesn't really matter what those are, but you know that, okay, this guy hit this. And people will know what they are before long. It's a part of the language, right? Exactly, exactly. And so we're just trying to push that earlier and earlier. That's what we like the pitch logic ball with with our kids. Like, because we, you can do spin rate, spin efficiency, arm angle inside of drills that we start with nine and 10 year olds who have three finger fastballs and don't realize that the three fingers is making them cut it. And they don't feel. By the it. way, by the way, quick quick tip on that. Um, mm, man, I uh, if you can give me a second, I can actually go grab one and show you guys. Go but grab I a have ball. A, all right, yeah. Well, I have a, a small ball that I use for this. So there's there are these balls that they my buddy told me they have them. I used it when I was growing up. I used it as an underloading ball though. I threw it at the end of my long toss, but it's four and a half ounces, and it's slightly smaller than a baseball. So it's it's eight and a half inches, and it's what's what, the brand? 
Pro nine. Pro nine. Pro nine. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah, but but they but there are co- only a couple brands that make it, and they. My buddy was telling me in Venezuela they have all of the kids use these balls up until the age of like nine or ten. Yeah. And that makes sense to me because they have. And, and guys, we're working on this right now. Okay, we're working on that on that concept to try to create some equipment for kids that's actually quality and the right proportions so that they can not be totally affected by stuff that's either if it is their size it's garbage or you know like it's still just too heavy for them or they can't whip and feel the bat the right way it's not stick like enough you know and top heavy enough and and that's what we need kids to feel like the way that we feel the ball we need to get them to feel it that way too so that when we're trying to teach them that's what they're feeling, you know. Yeah, we're, I'm pretty. I'm pretty excited about a lot of our youth kids that we've had. I, we have a couple kids that have been with us for probably about three years, and they're just going into like 10, 11. and that their development and understanding of the game is just so much higher than most of the kids in there. But it's it's just because we're constant. Like for three years, we've just been trying to have him build up his baseball IQ, make sure he understands what he is, make sure he knows what he feels so he doesn't hurt himself and listen to a coach like I did, right? And just sacrifice sacrifice myself for the team, which we all know now is like one of the worst things you could ever do, right? Because if you right. can't you can't throw the ball, you can't play the game. Just especially at a young age, like what, what are they going to hide you first base? Well, you're still going to have to throw the ball some at some point. Right. Right. So, well, as you know, uh, another thing in addition to that too, for, for guys that are just coming into pro ball, I don't know how many listeners you got in that scenario, but uh, that's another say that's the same environment there. Oftentimes from what, from my experience and then from what I've heard from a lot of other guys and other teams too, there's a lot of pressure to stay out of the training room. A lot of pressure to not show that you're sore or experiencing discomfort. And guys, that's wrong. It's flat out wrong. Okay. And it and I I don't understand. I think maybe it's uh either it's laziness on the trainer's part, okay, because because what's going on is maybe they don't want to keep guys out of the training room. I can't understand what agenda teams would have for doing that other than traffic in the training room I mean to hire more guys I don't okay. know because so I, I want I, my guys to be tuned up that's yeah, all I know sure. I want well, them to get as much treatment as possible that's totally. me but I've seen guys get hurt because they didn't want to be seen in the training room they were worried about how it was going to affect their playing time or whatever you can't make the club in the tub all this crap that you hear around the clubhouse mm-hmm. well it got intimidating and you know what and I'm getting them hurt so don't be that guy don't worry about the impression that you're giving anyone else. Get your done. Get your your training and your treatment done, so that you feel your best when you get on the field, and your performance will take care of the rest. You know, but I've seen that be a big issue. I, I love that you said that because that's the. So I'm gonna flip it again back to where it was. That's the exact same issues that you see running with young kids, right? They run into soreness. They don't want to say anything because they don't want to come out of the game. All of us here, or right they're now, scared lot- to tell dad. That's exactly what I was going to say. I'm scared to tell them my arm hurts. We've lied to our parents or our coaches every time to say our arm hurts because we either don't want to come out of the game, we don't want to let the team down, whatever that fallacy is of the the situation, and it's the worst thing you could do. I I broke my elbow my senior year in college basically doing the same thing. Team needs you. That's what I got, and I said something before the start. 
hey man, team ninja. We win this game, conference tournament, four mm-hmm. innings later. Yeah. Like I'm just gonna, ah, you know. So yeah, I, I got a story for you. Close, close friend of mine. He was a catcher. Um, they ran out of pitching basically, and he said, "Hey man, you want to hop up on a bump and get an inning?" Well, he dealt. Well, guess what they did? They had a double. They had a doubleheader that day. They started the dude in the next game. Guess what he did? He blew his elbow out. Weird. Never played again yes. after that. My shirt cast, perfect timing there. That's our that's our shirt right there that we have because of those exact stories. Weird, weird. Not really. We not need you. Whatever. Really. Get not surprised. Yeah. That's one it, pitch. It, one pitch can ruin your career, man. Yeah, one we pitch. we. Uh, this brought this this to light, and it's one of my favorite tools that we do all the time. And and I wish I had it earlier in my playing career because it definitely would have been able to calm the nerves in my head, especially on how can you know how how much you have to do it, right? That's speaking of longevity, I prided myself on my, my highest season that I was at where I was in the Pacific league where I threw five days in a row, two times. I also started and then went back to relieving and then worked my way down. And just, I threw all the time I wanted to win. I knew that if I won down in Mexico in those leagues, then I would give me better contracts. And I knew that they were, I was an import. They were going to lean on me. So I was just trying to be ready every day. And so this, recovery arm care system thing that everybody's kind of doing you know i was picking up on that plan with all of these you know 38 40 year old um, dominican venezuelan guys still throwing 100 and i'm asking them what are you doing what do you what what are you throwing 100 at 40 right I, i'll tell you this around, story yeah. I, I told this story on the podcast before but i'll tell you real quick one of the guys that i played with would only throw if he calibrated his long toss after BP, if he could throw it out from center field, from home plate to center field. That was how he knew if he was ready that day. If he couldn't That's throw correct. it out, if he couldn't throw it out of center field, I'm down. I'm down today. And I'd be like, I only saw him do it like four times. I was granted it was a short season winter ball, yeah. but there were like four times where he like hit the wall or was short. He'd be like, yeah, not throwing today. I'm like, dude, that's crazy. Like we were just so, standing dude. in the outfield for an hour and a half and they'd pick up one baseball shuffle fire from home plate when it was this over and funny. let it rip. This is really funny actually that you bring that up. So I don't know what you guys will take away from this, but so that's a really good representation of how the, you know, how you're, whether you're fatigued or not. Right the direct representation of that because fatigue is defined as when the brain says turn on and turn on at hundred percent, that muscle only responds at 85 or whatever. And that's the definition of fatigue. So I mean, when you're going go and your arm is only responding at 80% of that speed and then it starts lagging behind and all that, that's, we know that feeling, right? That's yeah. fatigue. So uh, when I, when I first actually met Seth, it's it's really funny because the guy that referred Seth to me is actually here right now. I uh, came up to see us, a uh, catcher that he Seth played with at ASU, um, who was playing with me in Laredo. Well, Seth called him up when he was having elbow pain when he was still with the Cardinals toward the end of his career with them, and uh, said, "Hey, I got." elbow pain and you know i'm afraid i'm gonna get released basically you know my velocity's down so forth and i said and lois told him 
he says, man, this guy's really good with guys. He's rehabbed a couple guys on our team because they will work on other players that I played with a lot toward the end of my career. And um, I, uh, he said, you know, he could probably help you out. So this is what I told Seth. I said, go out and throw long toss every day for two weeks, over 300 feet. Force yourself to. He said, dude, my arm's killing me. I said, go out and do it anyway. I said, one or two things will happen. I said, either A, you'll figure out how to throw the ball without it hurting, and that is the right way to throw. Or you'll blow up out. One of the two. And by the end of the year, the dude was bumped up to AAA, throwing 95, 96 out of the pen. I, I love it. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to take that exact story and go into a philosophy that we have right now because you just kind of proved one of our points, right? We believe that the um, the evaluation system of the throw is kind of off, right? People don't look at it correctly. Most people look at the speed first. We actually think it needs to be health. If it feels bad, right, if there's tension, there's no, there's no way that you can reach maximum capacity like you said you can't get to 100% power if it hurts right so it has You're to right. be it has to feel good then it needs to go where it's supposed to and then it has to be speed and if you can evaluate that after each throw for what you're doing in that order more likely you're going to be able to repeat it in a very simple way cuz like you said yeah. we know when it feels good we know right away and then you'll if you if you can force yourself to keep your eyes up and see where the ball goes then you can see where it went Right. And then if you like we have our setup, if you have some form of, a, you know, tracking, whether it's a radar gun or a pitch logic ball or rap soda or track, you know, whatever it is, some some kind of feedback system. Right. That can tell you yes or no. So if we can make that as binary as possible, then it's going to really help anybody understand what it is. And that's where when I I was not fortunate enough playing a radar gun until later in my career, until I got to Mexico and there's radar guns and screens everywhere. Right. And so I distinctly remember one of the first times coming out of the pen, um, throwing with radar gun in my in my vision, not behind me on the scoreboard, but like above the catcher to the left. Mm. And I remember warming up and being like, "Okay, let me just see what this feels like. I have never experienced in-game adrenaline with evaluation of understanding what my velo is. First one, I'm like 86. I'm like, "Okay, there's way more in there. I end up getting all the way up to 96 within my eight pitches only. And then my mm -hmm. first batter, I'm like 94, 95. And I just felt amazing. Right. And I, yeah. like, I remember being like 94. Okay. That wasn't quite the 96, but I, I think I can stay down in the zone with that. Right. And then it was like, okay, cutter, boom, 91. I'm like, dang, I've never thrown my cutter at 91. Jeez. All right. Normally it's like five to seven right now. It's like three to four. I, I so whatever I'm doing right now, I, I'm just going to keep that feeling. Right. So I ended up yeah. striking out the side, having a great outing. And leaving and being like, if I only could get that information every time when I'm warming up, my calibration system to understand my timing is bar none easier than anything. I don't need to think about the height of my elbow, my knee, or my or anything. The radar will give me this information right away. And so right. the idea that I have that doesn't make sense is why don't we have radar guns in the bullpen so guys can see mm -hmm. this stuff, you know, when there's spin data and all the things? Because how many times this discussion? Yeah, we I just had this discussion yeah, with the guys well, how they would prefer to have a gun in the bullpen. Why wouldn't so they get you're feedback. flipping? You're a you're a slider banger guy. You're Adam Adovino. How do you? They don't know? want to see it during the game. They don't want to see it during the game, but they want it in the bullpen. Yeah, well, and, and I'm not and I'm saying and I'm not saying that that's a problem, but that's the same. We need to you you want a little verification for yourself, whether you, even video, well, right? It's just that I I gotta tell you a couple of things. Number one, what you said, 
if the athlete doesn't feel good, if he's if there's any sort of thing that is polluting his mind before the pitch, then that's what you have to attack first. Okay. There is no such thing as uh, step one where the athlete isn't completely healthy and isn't that means that there's nothing holding him back. So that includes even a guy rehabbing from an injury and holding back because he's still protecting, you know, in a way or whatever, like not getting to full extension up uh, UCL at three or something like that. Right. Uh, it's a perfect example of that. But, but the thing is, okay, that, has a wide array of effects down the line when you have an athlete who, when they put the ball in their hand, they feel good. Just like when you put the driver in your hand, you want to swing it hard and you know, the feeling of flushing a 350 yard drive down the middle before you swing it. You can't have the right kind of intent when you're training. If your mind and your body is affected by fear, fear of pain or discomfort, everything that you do, will be affected by it. In fact, it is an inhibitory stimulus to your motor neuron firing, which means that you're going to be training your body to do what? Move slower. Mm -hmm. If you continue to train that way. So what's best? To not train that way at all if until you feel good. Quality repetitions. I would always take less quality repetitions than a bunch of crappy ones, you know. So that and then and then how that matches up with the, the, in the player's intent when they throw. You want the guy to come out and be itching to throw. Okay? You want your athlete to come out and can't wait to get the ball in their hand and can't wait to throw it hard that day. Not the other way around, not dreading it, right? Yeah. And when you have that mentality in the athlete, trust me, you want to try to preserve it. So if that means cutting the end of the workout off early so that they can feel that the next day, or two days later or whatever sooner than do that. Bruce Lee says, if anything that you do during your training in the day is going to affect your ability to do it tomorrow, don't do it. So just meaning don't train in a way today where you're just going to annihilate yourself for tomorrow. That's stupid. You know, like you, you're not going to ever set up a, a base. And, and when I was throwing my best, I was going to tell you what the long toss thing when I was throwing my best when I was, in, when I was playing, I was throwing long toss almost every day too. I was throwing long toss almost every single day. And this is past 300 feet and still getting some off of the bump before the game sometimes. So sounds like we would have been if, friends in any ball. We'd have been, yeah, we'd have been long toss partners and, and shuffle fire and rip. I, yeah. I think the key guys is just to start slow and set the right foundation and the right end picture. It's what we call end picture all the time. So what am I trying to get to? What is this throw going to look like if I stepped outside myself? You know, visualizing your throw from a third party perspective, kind of. Um, you know, that purifying that image is really important. And then setting a foundation really that it's geared toward that, it's working toward that, right? That correct M picture. And then doing it in a way where you can continue to build your workload each day until you're at the point where you can throw a hundred every single day. Now, like right now, because I don't train and I spend all my time training these guys, when I go out and I throw, I got to take like a week off because I get so sore because I don't have it built up and I don't have the mass on me to, to absorb all the shock too from doing it repetitively either. You know, like I need more size 
not to throw a lot harder. I need more size to absorb the shock that it takes me. I'm not pressing 100 on the ball. Let's press 100 back on me too, man. It's still 13 and a half pounds of force going back into my body. Well, I'm only 175 pounds, man. It jolts you a little bit more than if you ran a 200. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing. That's kind of I see it. it's, it's it's great, man. I, it sounds like we're right in line with what we're what we're talking about. Um, real quick transition. I know we don't have a ton of time left. Um, I want to talk yeah, about the, the backyard. That, yeah, yeah, the backyard, man. Because uh, I'm sure you experienced the controversy of the running guns, right, and everything that goes into that. And I love the cleats, the running gun, your cube. You know the the net cube that you guys had. I didn't know do you have a track man behind that. Is that what I heard earlier that that you get yeah, from there? Well, we, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. awesome. Well, we, we, we've used yeah we've so here's kind of the model that I've used with these guys. So we're limited. We're in a backyard, you know, and though we go out to the park and we long toss and stuff too. Like you said, the the gun is a tool. The gun is a tool of direct feedback. Often I only use it even. And I'll have guys tell me without them seeing, you know, what's on the gun. In the past, I've done it, done it where I'll test them and I'll ask them, what do you think the number was? And I'll ask them how they relate their feeling in the throw to the numbers, the actual data. And then you start to see how, how close is this dude's, you know, uh, feel to, you know, what we're trying to achieve mechanically to, to what it should be. You know, you kind of you get the, a really clear image as to who is seeking the right feelings and who's not, who's in touch with their body and how to generate power the right way and who's not whenever you start doing that. But with the running guns and stuff, you can kind of start to look at it like this. If I can teach these guys how to use, even if even if when they get on the mound, this stuff doesn't carry over completely. If I could teach a guy how to th- run a gun and throw the ball on a run 115 miles an hour, let's say. Dead sprint on a crow hop, throw the ball 115. That would guarantee you throw over 100 miles an hour, right? I mean, even upwards of maybe 105. Well, see, I don't think that that's really that hard to do. I think, I mean, if the guy's got decent mechanics, I think that in a few days, I can probably teach you how to utilize momentum, utilize absorb, you know, uh, absorbing force and you know, once you're planning into pulling into the ground and then the converting and, and creating force that goes on after that and the timing of all that and what's going to improve that, going to elevate that level of force, what kind of uh, movements or positioning will do that and break it down in a structure where guys understand the science of it more so. You know, like, what am I really doing with my body? And how am I really generating force? And how do I conserve momentum? How do I conserve the energy within this throw and not fight it? Okay, it's kind of what you were talking about, about getting sticky within the throw. That's what we call it, getting sticky, fighting yourself, whatever, if it's not flowing through. That's really what I'm trying to show the guys to do. So if I can do that on a, on a run, then it, what it becomes about is, is I, now they got the footwork, they got the momentum, they felt what it feels like for the ball to come out of their hands 10 to 12 miles an hour. Heart. Maybe, maybe it's not 115, but maybe they're a 90 mile an hour guy and they just throw a ball 105 for the first time. Okay, that's a big deal. Because now they've done a couple of things. They've created the muscle memory. They've 
now set a new baseline a little bit because of central nervous system adaptation too, right? And they have also changed this, the psychological component that they're capable of a lot more, okay? And that's something that we've achieved here at Backyard Baseball with all of the success that we've had is when people show up here, they expect to get better, okay, immediately. On day one, they expect to get better. And that's a pretty magical thing. Because then you don't have the athlete ever holding themselves back, right? You don't ever have the athlete not being confident going into it. So they're already they already have the right attitude. They already expect to be better. Um, and then, you know, once I teach them that, then a lot of times it's really about how do we replicate it off the mound now? Right? Because I put them on the mound, not not a whole lot's different, you know, from what they were before. And that's part I'm not sure I can tell you yet because that's where I'm going to make my money. I hear you. I hear you. Well, I mean, it sounds like we're on the same page. I can teach these guys how to do it and how to move that way. And what everyone who comes back here will tell you the same thing. Okay. There's no mystery to it. My guys move better than anyone else. We move faster. We we have better footwork. We are more dynamic than anyone else. And that's why guys throw as hard as they do back here. Okay, but the the issue is that a lot of times that foundation we were talking about when the when we're growing up, when we're kids and we're not taught the right things or whatever. Well, even some of that stuff shows up back here. So like the, the positioning and the footwork and stuff and the strength through the hips and lower back. I've had constant guys, constant tweaks of the hips, adductors, um, you know, upper quad area oblique stuff like that constant tweaks basically of guys because they're not flexible enough they're not used to being that dynamic they're not you know they don't know how to simply just turn on without firing the antagonistic muscle group you know like they don't they don't understand all that because they haven't practiced it they never redlined it they've never redlined it like we've had you know you got to right. redline so, that system a couple times. You've never thrown the ball as hard as you possibly can before, ever. Right, right. And and once you do that, what do you what do you learn? Where are you breaking down? What your weak links are? And also, right. you didn't die. You thought you were going right. to die. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's you know? the other part. That's the other part. Now, like that's one of the other things that we've we've gotten really good at is showing guys how to land, showing guys how to not worry about what happens after the throw. So if you're every time you go into the throw, you're worried about pain or you're worried about, well, shoot, I can't really let it all go because I feel like I'm going to land on my face and I'm afraid of that. Then you'll never know what you can do and you'll never set that new baseline. Okay? That never happens because you never can take your governor off, you know. So there's a there's a this is more about playing with the psychology of the athlete than it is anything else. Honestly. And then about how to keep them healthy through it. So once you do get the tweaks and you find out what your weak links are, I think that a big part of the gap that hasn't been covered, you know, in the past is, yeah, we can we can see what we might be necessary to do it, but we can't stay healthy, right? We can't stay healthy while we train to do it. While we're pushing the body to go that speed when we're not used to it, guys get hurt all the time. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other things that uh, we're utilizing. The, the POV is one of them. You know, but there are a lot of other avenues that we've tapped into in order to prep the tissue for this kind of training. So 
that's probably the biggest thing that I think we have that other people don't. Well, Seth, I, I'm, I don't want to eat up too much of your time. I know you got to go. Um, you know, this has been really, really fun. Sorry, my, my dog has been terrorizing no, me the whole time. She wants to go outside. So this is a perfect little stop-off point for probably the part one of, of future conversations that we can have, definitely. Sure, sure. I, 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 I really Dude, for sure. I, it sounds like, I, you know, uh, believe it or not, there's a bunch of us out here. So there's a bunch of us who think like this, you know, and that's really what we're trying to do uh, is get everything get everybody you know together and have these conversations because you know your story i i think i actually heard of you from one of my buddies that were there it was like dude there's like i thought 100 here that didn't even get picked up i don't even understand what's going on and it's like yeah there's those these stories like that all the time and it makes me think about you know a, a lot of the latin cultures that i played in and how they just completely do it differently you know, and um, the academies themselves are a lot more similar to what you and I have in the situations of training baseball and these other, you know, these must, much less fortunate places. And they're producing dudes throw 100 all the time, you know, right. and, and those are the questions that we have. So I won't keep going on it. Um, one quick thing. Why don't you tell everybody just real quick where they can find you, where you're at, sure. and, and we'll sign off from there. Absolutely. Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at pitching underscore doctor. Um, I think that uh, we're going to have uh, maybe another name that unifies all of this together back here at baseball and pitching doctor and whatever else before long. But I don't know if we have that all hammered out yet. Well, that's what we're working on. But yeah, you can find me there. I don't have, I do have a Twitter. Um, I think that's pitching underscore just dr. I think it is, uh, but I'm not on there very much. Um, so yeah, that's that's the only thing that I really use is Instagram. And um, you can email me at uh, slints at wau.edu if you got any questions. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Seth, this has been amazing. I really appreciate it again. Um, Cash, you got anything? I just, I, I really appreciate you, man. There were, I bit my tongue on a lot of things because there's just for time, but there's uh, a lot, a lot of really good stuff and we're going to keep talking. So awesome. I look forward to it guys. You definitely, guys are, definitely. you guys are very, it was really nice to talk to you. You too, man. You too. We really appreciate it. All right, guys, go follow Seth at the pitching doctor on IG, hit him up there. Uh, if you got any questions, DM him. I'm sure, you know, he'd get back to you from there. Also, if you got any questions for us, DM us. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Seth, it's been a pleasure. Um, you know, I'll tag you in some stuff. Hopefully the uh, pitching world can get, get a little bit more follows because it's it's real fun to watch 104, 105 pull downs in, in the backyard because I'm I'm jacked up every time I see it. I'm like okay. Hey man, baseball is more fun when you throw hard. Definitely. Hundred percent for sure. Definitely. All right, guys, appreciate it again. See you guys next time. Bye.